Hello and welcome to the Paranormal States of America. I'm your host, John Devine, and on this episode, we're going to be exploring the ghosts and hauntings of the state of Maryland. Before we get into this episode, I want to thank everyone who listens to this show. I know you got a lot of options when it comes to paranormal-themed podcasts, and I appreciate every listener that takes the time to click the play button on this show. If you haven't yet, please click that subscribe or follow button so that you get notifications when new episodes are released. And if you have any feedback on the show, please message me on social media or send me an email. All the contact details are listed in the show description. On this episode, we're beginning our look at the paranormal activity in Maryland. We're starting with ghosts and hauntings of the Old Line State. The five locations I've included are the stories and histories I found to be the most interesting and most paranormal. So without further ado, let's find out what's haunting the state of Maryland. After a long journey, the beacon from a distant lighthouse can be a welcome sight. But that same light in stormy or foggy weather, and seen too late, can be a disaster. While lighthouses and their keepers are devoted to warning passing vessels of potential dangers, sometimes it's the people on land who need to be cautious of their surroundings. The Point Lookout Lighthouse in Scotland, Maryland, at the junction of the Chesapeake Bay at the Potomac River, is regarded as one of the most haunted locations in the country. From 1830 to 1966, the light shone from the Point Lookout Lighthouse. The lighthouse began operations on September 20, 1830. James Davis, the first keeper, died in the lighthouse on December 3rd of that same year. His daughter Anne took over the role of keeper after his death. Oddly, this wouldn't be the last time a daughter would take control of the lighthouse after the death of her father. In 1853, Richard Edwards served as keeper for four months before dying at the lighthouse. His daughter Martha Edwards took over as keeper after his death. In 1857, William Johnson purchased the land on the point to create a resort. Five years later, the federal government converted the resort buildings into a military hospital to support the Union's war effort. The Hammond Hospital opened in August 1862. In July 1863, the Battle of Gettysburg resulted in both high numbers of casualties and prisoners of war. Both were taken to Point Lookout by the Union Army. A 40-acre prison compound was established north of the hospital and named Camp Hoffman. A 15-foot-tall wooden fence surrounded the compound, and guards kept watch from the top of the fence. In August of 1863, the stockade held more than 1,700 Confederate soldiers. By the end of the year, there were 9,000 prisoners. The following summer, the prison population grew to 15,500. By the summer of 1865, 20,000 Confederate prisoners of war were held at Point Lookout, way more than the camp was designed to hold. The conditions at the prison worsened as the population grew. There were no barracks built, and the only protection from the summer heat and the freezing winters were thin tents. Contaminated drinking water, starvation, malaria, typhoid fever, and exposure to the elements led to a high death rate at the camp. An estimated 4,000 of the 50,000 prisoners died at Point Lookout. 
Two cemeteries were established on the peninsula, one for Union soldiers who died at Hammond Hospital and another for the Confederate prisoners of war. The Confederate prisoners died at such a high rate that they were buried in mass graves. But it's not just the land that experienced tragedy. The water has seen shipwrecks and deaths as well. In July 1864, the USS Tulip, a Union Navy ship that patrolled Confederate waters to prevent them from trading with other nations, exploded off the shore of Point Lookout. There were 57 soldiers on this ship, and only 10 survived the boiler explosion. Two later died in injuries sustained in the disaster. Eight corpses from the accident washed up on the shore of Point Lookout. In 1878, a hurricane ripped the deck off a cargo and passenger ship named the Express. The ship was rolled by the large waves, and 16 people lost their lives. People have reported that the Express's second mate, James Haney, knocks on the door of the lighthouse during storms and is sometimes seen on the beach as a warning before major storms. With this long history of sorrow, suffering, and death, it's no surprise that the lighthouse on the surrounding land is a hotspot for paranormal activity. In the 1970s, Jerry Sward moved into the lighthouse's north duplex, and Anna Carpenter moved into the south duplex. Anna only lived at the lighthouse for a short time, but she reported hearing footsteps from the attic, and she heard furniture being moved around in Jerry's unit while he was out. Jerry reported numerous ghostly happenings during his time living at the lighthouse. Here are just a few of them. The kitchen wall started to glow one night for about 10 minutes. Another time for two weeks, he heard snoring in the kitchen every night. During storms, he heard voices inside and outside the lighthouse. He heard footsteps walking up and down the hallways and stairs. He once found his dog locked out of the house in the screened-in porch, but the door was locked from the inside. He often reported strong odors coming from the living room, and lights turned on and off and doors would suddenly slam shut. On January 14, 1980, the first paranormal investigation of the lighthouse took place. Dr. Hans Holzer, a noted parapsychologist, led the investigation with his team from New York, and they were joined by members of the Maryland Committee for Psychical Research. During the investigation, Laura Berg, who lived at the lighthouse from 1979 to 1981, took notes of this and other investigations. The following activity was captured during the investigation with the medium. In the living room, the medium felt sick with a bad headache, and when the team went upstairs, she could hear voices in the living room. In the middle room upstairs, the medium felt sick again. She reported feeling cold and weak. She felt that someone had experienced agony in the room and had been held against her will. It's possible that some Civil War soldiers may have been held here and interrogated. At the top of the stairs, a woman's presence was felt, and the medium felt that the woman had contemplated throwing herself down the steps many times. A second investigation was held February 16, 1980, with the Maryland Committee for Psychical Research with the medium Nancy Stallings. Several voices were recorded on this investigation. In the basement, a figure was seen in the back room, and a voice recorded that was described as saying, Let me out, or get out. Two more investigations were held before Laura Berg moved out in 1981. On March 26, 2001, Laura participated in another investigation at the lighthouse with a medium named Carol. In the south side basement, Carol was pushed by an entity and felt unwelcome. Point Lookout is now a Maryland State Park and occasionally hosts evening ghost tours. If you have a chance to visit Point Lookout State Park, stay alert. You never know when you may encounter a beacon from the past.
The Lord Baltimore Hotel in downtown Baltimore is a beautiful hotel in the French Renaissance style. Built in 1928, it was the tallest building in the city at the time. The hotel's elegant design attracted a wealthy clientele. The ballroom was filled with live music and dancing. As much as we would like them to, the good times don't stay around forever. A year after the hotel was built, Baltimore and the rest of the country was hit by the start of the Great Depression. The guests were still coming to the hotel, but it wasn't for the food, the hospitality, the music, or the dancing. No, they came to the Lord Baltimore Hotel for one thing, to jump from the tallest building in the city. At least 20 suicides were documented at the hotel during the Great Depression, and at least a few ghosts of these jumpers haunt the hotel. Both guests and staff have reported that the elevator will go to the top floor, the 19th, without anyone calling for it at that or any other floor. Some people have reported feelings of being touched by unseen entities in the elevator. The spirit of a little girl named Molly has been seen in a white dress playing with a red ball on the 19th floor. The story about Molly is that her parents came here during the Depression dressed in her finest clothes. The story goes that after an evening of dancing, they went up to the 19th floor and jumped to their deaths from the top of the hotel. Guests and hotel staff have reported seeing a couple dressed in 1920-style clothing walking down the hallways of the 19th floor, only to disappear around the corner. Molly has also been seen in some of the rooms, crying, screaming, or rocking back and forth. The presidential suite has a mysterious child-sized handprint on the wallpaper that gives off the heat signature on special cameras that paranormal investigators use. The Lord Baltimore Hotel is still a functioning luxury hotel for travelers looking for a getaway. But for some of the permanent guests, it's home. The USS Constellation is a wooden sloop of war that's over 200 years old. It is docked in Baltimore's Inner Harbor. The Constellation was first commissioned in 1797. Commodore Thomas Truxton was the first captain of the ship. During a battle in the West Indies, Neil Harvey fell asleep while on watch. When Truxton learned of his lapse in duty, he confined Harvey for punishment. After the battle, Truxton ordered Harvey to be tied to a cannon and blown to pieces to serve as a warning to the rest of the crew. In 1859, it served with the Africa Squadron, operating at the mouth of the Congo River to put an end to the Atlantic slave trade. The U.S. Navy awarded prize money to the squadron for each slave ship captured and a $25 bounty for each slave that was freed. The Constellation arrived in Baltimore in September 1955. It was docked at a local shipyard for repairs, and that's when the ghost started to be seen. Sailors on nearby ships reported odd noises and shapes on board the Constellation. The submarine Pike was moored closest to the Constellation, and the submariners regularly saw a ghost on the ship. In December 1955, Lieutenant Commander Alan Ross Bruham, U.S. Navy, decided to investigate the reports. Right around midnight, he smelt a gunpowder-like smell, and an apparition appeared in front of him that he described as a phosphorescently glowing, translucent ectoplasmic manifestation of a late 18th or early 19th century sailor, complete with gold-striped trousers, cocked hat, and sword. He was able to get a picture of the entity before it disappeared. The picture does appear to show a commander on the deck, right arm across his body, hand on the sword on his hip. In 1964, a priest arrived to visit the Constellation. There was no one around to give him a tour, so he went below deck himself. While looking around, he was startled by an older gentleman who volunteered information about the history of the vessel and the names of the equipment. 
After thanking the man, the priest went above deck and saw a group of tour guides. He thanked them and said that the guide below was very knowledgeable. The others notified him that no one else was below deck. The guides and the priest rushed down and found no one below deck. The spirits on board the Constellation are believed to be that of Neil Harvey, Commodore Thomas Truxton, Carl Hansen, who was the ship's watchman in Baltimore until 1965, an 11-year-old surgeon's assistant who was stabbed by two sailors, and a sailor who hanged himself on board. Even though it's been over 65 years since being decommissioned for the last time, sailors from the beginning of the vessel's life continue to man their post, waiting for their next mission. Today is the day, she thought as she entered the fourth floor of the room of the inn in the heart of the bustling city of Annapolis. Her fiancé had sent a letter saying that they would soon be reunited after his long naval assignment. Meet me in Annapolis, his letter had said, and we'll be married. After six years of being engaged, almost all of those with him serving in the Navy, she was ready. She was still a young woman in her early thirties, but with many younger girls already married, she was ready for her turn as the bride. She had even stitched her own white gown for the occasion. When she received notice from the hotel staff that her fiancé's ship had docked in the city, she pulled the gown from the box to prepare for the ceremony. The minutes passed, then an hour. She paced the room, her gown trailing across the wooden floor. She opened the window and occasionally put half her body outside to see if she could glimpse her lover coming toward the hotel. When one of the hotel staff saw that she was putting herself in danger by going out the window like that, they warned her about it. They even closed the window to prevent a tragic accident, but still she paced across the room, peering out of the window every couple of minutes to see if he was getting closer. After about two hours, Captain Campbell finally made it to the inn. He got held up at the dock, making sure everything was safe and secure. He knew she was waiting for him, and not just today, but for half a dozen years. He would spend the rest of his life making up for the wait. As he approached the inn, he was on the same side of the street. He looked up to the window of his room, the room that was now theirs. He saw movement through the window, so he backed away from the building until he was almost in the middle of the road. He could see his love, wearing her wedding dress. For that moment, nothing else mattered. Standing in the middle of a busy road is always a dangerous move. It was even dangerous in 1817 when the captain stood, eyes fixed on the window, oblivious to the dangers around him. A loud crash rang out as a horse-drawn carriage struck the distracted man. The crash brought the bride's attention back to the window and the street below. She shrieked when she saw the carnage. She ran out of the room, down the stairs, and out to the street. She gathered the body of her soon-to-be husband in her arms. He couldn't speak as his ribs were crushed by the horse and carriage. He gripped her arms as she held him. Through her grief, she professed her love for him until his last breath escaped him. Her white gown was now covered in mud, dirt, and blood. A few of the hotel maids took the distraught woman to her room after the cleanup of the scene began. The maids left the woman on the bed while they went to go get a doctor to calm her. Her world was shattered. She had left their home in North Carolina to be reunited with her fiancé here in Annapolis, and they would be together forever. So why let death stand in their way? She stood from the bed and walked to the window. She opened it as wide as she could. She lifted one leg to the windowsill, and she used a frame to steady herself on the ledge. She stood there for a moment, looking down at the street. She could see the spot where her husband-to-be was killed. She took a deep breath and pushed herself out the window. As her feet left the ledge, she knew she would be reunited with her lover in their next life. 
together forever. To this day, visitors to the Maryland Inn have seen the bride on the top floor of the hotel, pacing in her room. Footsteps are also heard regularly. Her fiancé, the Navy captain, has been seen on the street near where he died and inside at the hotel bar. People report smelling cigar smoke when the captain is present. Homes are usually carefully planned and become labors of love for the owners to maintain. One house in Frederick, Maryland was built out of spontaneity and frustration. It is now called the Tyler Spite House. In 1814, Dr. John Tyler was an ophthalmologist and owned many plots of land in town which he acquired at a public auction from the confiscated estate of a notorious British sympathizer. One of the plots on the courthouse square was in the way of the city's plan to extend a road. Dr. Tyler didn't like the plan of a road cutting across his land next to his house. He decided to take concrete action. He discovered a local law that said if a building was in place or was under construction, the road wouldn't be able to be built. Seeing that he had to act quickly, he found a builder that was willing to start work that night. The road crew arrived the next morning to find a hole in the ground and workmen building a foundation where the road was supposed to go. Dr. Tyler was sitting in the chair on his porch in the house next door, watching the work on his new building. Tyler never lived in the house, but he did rent it out. In recent years, a woman who was renting an apartment in the building said that she would be woken up at 2.30 every morning in a cold sweat, feeling the presence of someone in her room. She reported seeing a gaunt, white figure moving around the room. She described it as a man with long, stringing hair and a loose robe. She claimed that the figure poked at her with long, bony fingers. She said that she would hear footsteps on the attic stairs, but never saw anything. Perhaps the negative energy that built the house in the first place is still present, haunting it to this day. That concludes our look into the hauntings of the state of Maryland. While researching this episode, it seems like every old building has paranormal lore around it, but few have enough details of the hauntings or the history that would support the legends. I'm sure I'll be taking another look at the ghosts of Maryland in a future episode. Remember to click that subscribe or follow button wherever you get your podcast. Do the same on social media. On the next episode, I'll be taking a look at the creatures and monsters of Maryland. Until next time, I'm John Devine signing off from the Paranormal States of America. Thank you for listening. <laughs>